Friends, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 1 is where we will be this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 814. Lamentations chapter 1. Last week in Pastor Ed's sermon, his first application point was to read the Old Testament and see Jesus Christ. And even Keith Allen's message last church night was to behold Jesus Christ in the Word. And so today as we dive into Lamentations, my hope and prayer is that we can do just that. So would you please pray with me once again. Our Father, we now commit this time to you. We pray, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us through your Word, that you would build us up in faith in love and holiness, all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Now, odds are that if I ask you, what's your favorite book in the Bible, you probably wouldn't say Lamentations. Or even if I said, okay, Desert Island, top five books of the Bible you're bringing with you, you only get five, go. Odds are Lamentations is probably not in any of our lists. I think part of the reason for this is because it's tucked away in that often neglected back half of the Old Testament. And part of the reason is, frankly, because it's just a really sad book. Listen to this quote about Lamentations. No other book within the biblical canon is as dark and depressing as this one. Some of us, when we hear that, in terms of our natural disposition and wiring are going like, yes, like, I just love to feel things, you know? Like, maybe you, you like singing sad and depressing songs, and you enjoy plays or musicals that end with unresolved tragedies or angst. Many of us, if we're quite honest, are particularly out of touch with feeling sad things. We've numbed ourselves to letting the bad emotions in, and Of course, there's a sense in which we should be happy and joyful, right? We're Christians. We're saved from an eternity in hell and reconciled with the God who created us. Like, we have been adopted into a family with a Father who loves us. And we have a Savior, Jesus, who who died for us. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And so in that sense, yes, the gospel is the great story in which everything sad comes untrue. And yet, the side of eternity we still live in the shadow of dark and sinful and sad and even depressing things, which is part of the reason why we have the book of Lamentations. You see, God in his scriptures, in his holy book, doesn't give us this like unrealistic picture of reality where everything is happy and everything is great and we all just need to cheer up buttercup on our way to heaven. No, the Bible is both insanely realistic and insanely helpful when it comes to our every human experience, including sadness and sin and weeping and lament. Lamentations was probably written by the prophet Jeremiah. And if not Jeremiah, then at least an eyewitness of the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. You can read historical accounts of this as we just did in 2 Chronicles 36 as well as in other places like 2 Kings 25 and the book of Jeremiah, chapters 39 and 52. But unlike those historical accounts that simply tell us what happened, the book of Lamentations is not historical narrative, but a poetic reflection upon those days. In other words, it doesn't just give us the record of events, but it actually gives us a theology. 
Lamentations has five chapters, each of them being a separate lament, or what is known as a dirge. And it's poetic in that the first four chapters of the book are actually Hebrew acrostics, meaning that they begin, each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, similar to Psalm 119. But it's not just poetry, it's also a lament, hence the name Lamentations, a lament being a cry of sadness or pain or confusion before the Lord. But this book is more than mere venting, right? As I said, it gives us a theology because it's an attempt to grapple with God. God's people are seeking to understand the meaning of the catastrophe that they've just been through. And so in light of these things, let's read now the first part of this poem, Lamentations 1, verses 1 through 11. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who is great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted. And she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wondering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. The sermon today is called Misery Afflicted. We're going to see two main aspects of this poem today. Number one is Jerusalem's misery, and number two is Jerusalem's afflictor. And then we're going to see how this poem actually points us to Jesus Christ and gives application for our church here today. So point number one, Jerusalem's misery. So when you feel miserable... What are the symptoms? Like, what do you do? As you laid up in bed under those cozy covers, is, is Netflix on? Is the ice cream tub out? Are there tears streaming? What, is your, what does your misery look like? What our author does here today is he actually gets out his pen 
and he gets out his paper and he writes poetry. And the author doesn't give us any introduction whatsoever. He just jumps right into it. Verse one, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. And so notice right away that the author is personifying the people of Jerusalem as a woman. And this woman, in every description of her, simply put, is miserable. She was a city that was once full of people and is now lonely. She has gone from being a wife to being a widow, and she's gone from being a princess to being a slave. And we know that this woman and ultimately the people of God are so miserable in all these ways because this destruction of Jerusalem would have been the most tragic and heartbreaking and catastrophic day in their nation's history. The northern kingdom had already been taken out by the Assyrians in 722 BC, and now the southern kingdom of Judah is taken out in 586 BC, so it's really, really over. It's not that there's just no king in Israel anymore. It's that there is no more Israel. There is no more Judah. And so in verse 2, the poet continues, She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. You know how sometimes it can kind of be fun to cry? Do you know what I'm talking about? When Tess and I watch a movie I'm always the one with just tears streaming down my face, and she's looking at me like I'm crazy. But it can be a little bit cathartic and fun to cry sometimes, can it not? That is not what this is like. This is bitter weeping. It's not a fun cry. It's an ugly cry. And so the poet here says that in the midst of this ugly cry, there is no one to comfort her, not a spouse and not even a friend. And why is this? Verse 2 Continues, all her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Maybe you know the feeling of like having had maybe one of your closest friends in the world or some of your tightest buddies betray you. Julius Caesar knew the feeling when his friend Marcus Brutus stabbed him to death and he cried out, Et tu, Brute, meaning you too, Brutus. Right? The American soldiers knew the feeling when their friend, Benedict Arnold, defected to the British forces. And Judah here knows this feeling quite well, as those whom they would consider to be their friends have betrayed them. The nations around them have betrayed them and become their enemies. And so now in verse 3, Judah is described as being in exile, scattered, without a resting place. And not just the people, but even the roads are mourning, verse 4 says because there's no one at the festivals. There's no people. The priests are groaning. The women have been afflicted, or even as some translations say, have been like dragged away. Verse 5 tells us that Judah's enemies are now calling the shots, and that even their children, too, have been captured. So I hope you're seeing just how low and how miserable these people of Judah are. This past week, I went to my first ever New York Mets game, and when I came to New York, I was a free agent in terms of my baseball fanhood, and so I've been now recruited to the Mets' cause. But correct me if I'm wrong on this, but as far as I understand it, in recent decades, the New York Mets haven't known anything else other than being at the bottom. And there's a certain type of misery when you're at the bottom, and you've always been there. You've never known anything else. You don't know what greatness tastes like. 
But it's a different type of misery altogether when you've once known greatness, when you've once been at the top and then have been brought low, when you've descended from the highest of the highs to the lowest of the lows. And that is tragically exactly what is happening to Judah here. Verse 6 says, From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. All her majesty has departed. When I was in England a few weeks back, a group of us discovered this old ruined castle. Apparently it was built like a thousand years ago. Someone really rich and important used to live there. And, and as you're kind of walking around this place, you can read the historical signs that tell you the significance and like the battles that were fought over it and so on. And when you're in a place like this, it gives you the sense that something really important used to be happening there, right? These halls used to be full of people and life and fullness, but now the castle is crumbled, the weeds are overgrown, and there's no one there. And that's what Judah is like. And part of the reason is due to the failures of the leaders who were supposed to be leading them and guiding them and protecting them and were supposed to be godly. But verse 6 tells us that, that these princes have become like deer that find no pasture. Pastor Ed learned just this last week what it's like to see a deer fleeing from him, specifically from his rental vehicle. And if you've ever sprinted at a deer before, you know how afraid deer can be of us. We don't teach them to be afraid, but they just are. And so rather than these leaders being described as like some kind of cool animal like lions or tigers or bears, oh my, they're referred to as fleeing deer. It's referring to Zedekiah and all of Jerusalem's leaders who ran from the city as the Babylonians attacked them. And to put a great cherry on top, verse 7 tells us that Judah's enemies were gloating over her and mocking her downfall and her misery. So in order for us to get our heads around just what this misery would have been like, I want you to picture this church, North Shore Baptist, at the height of its joy. Picture this place like packed out, Wednesday night worship, breaking all the fire codes, right? Remember the joy that you felt in your heart as you heard the saints singing. Remember all the special and significant memories that have taken place for you here in this room. On the one hand, we know that the church is not a building, but a people, of course. But at the same time, this church building, this place, is really special and significant, is it not? For all of its odd eccentricities and quirks, for all its mysteries of the septic system and the thermostat, for its ugly stairwell over there, and for its crammed basement, love grows best in small houses. Amen? I want you to take all of that joy and all of that significance and all of that sentimentality, and I want you to picture walking into this church building on a Sunday morning, and there's, nowhere he there's no one here. And it's supposed to be bubbling with life and fullness. But it's been weeks and it's been months since anybody's been here. You walk in and there's spider webs and there's dust everywhere. There's no more after school class. There's no more carpenter shop. There's no more Ask JT. There are no more interns. There are no more people. And when you enter this place, you can smell the smoke and ash of burning. 
And it's not from that one time that Pastor Ed almost burned down the church. But it's because someone actually attacked and burned this building. This people have been carried away and scattered in all the joyful and significant memories with them. Of course, all analogies break down at a certain point. We are not the people of Judah. We are the church. This building is not Jerusalem or the temple. There's nothing holy about it except for the people. And thankfully, our church is not going to be attacked anytime soon, Lord willing. But this mental imagery puts us somewhat into the emotional headspace that the people of Judah would have been in when they were mourning, when they were lonely and felt betrayed. But amp it up for them by about a thousand because for them, it wasn't just their place of worship. It was actually their home and their country and their city being captured and taken from them as well. So pause and think for just a minute about all the different types of misery that have been described so far. Loneliness, sadness, widowhood, slavery, bitter weeping, no comforters, no friends, stolen children, departed majesty, fleeing leaders, nostalgic memories, and mocking enemies. This is what it's like to experience misery here on earth, and Judah is getting a full taste of it. So that's point number one, Jerusalem's misery. Point number two is Jerusalem's afflictor. Let's read now the second part of the poem, verses 12 through 22. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire, into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I've been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble, and they are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced, and let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many, and my heart is faint. Now, after all the misery that has been described in this poem, we might be feeling bad for the people of Jerusalem at this point. Like, what did they possibly do to deserve misery in its fullness? 
We might be tempted to ask with Job's friend, like, in what way did you sin? And the book of Job teaches us this is not always the best question to ask people when they're in the midst of some kind of suffering. Because in Job's case, his friends, they were terribly off base in their diagnosis as Job's suffering was not in any way correlated to his sin. But in this case, interestingly, Job's friend's question would actually be dead on the money. And this is because unlike Job, the author flat out admits it. Verse 8 says this, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. So the misery described, if it hasn't yet been enough, the lady of Jerusalem is now described as filthy. And I know ladies like to be described as lots of different things. Typically, filthy is not at the top of that list. But it's ultimately because of her sin that she has become so filthy. The sinful filth has led her to be despised and to be ashamed and to groan. And in one sense, this is what all sin does to us. This is what sin is like, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve first sinned against God, they became filthy and ashamed and miserable because of their sin. And they became corrupted such that sin was not just something that they did, but something that they were. And so too for us, that we today are sinful from the time we are in our mother's womb. Why? Because we've inherited this sin nature from our first parents. And now when we sin today actively, we're living in accordance with our sin nature. And we too are becoming filthy and miserable because of our sin. But it's easy to talk about sin in sort of generic ways like this. But of course, the people of Judah were sinners. We know that. Of course, we're sinners. But what was the specific offense that they did? Like, what did they do? Think back to the scripture reading we just heard from our brother Charles. Second Chronicles 36 verses 14 through 16 gives a helpful summary. It says this, All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. So Chronicles tells us that these people sinned by following these abominations of the nations. In other words, the nations surrounding Israel would have had all sorts of ways of living outside God's revealed will, including idolatry and homosexuality and adultery and even things like child sacrifice. And when we read through the Old Testament laws, we see how God explicitly prohibits all of this kinds of behavior, and the people of Israel thought, okay, I'm just going to do all of those things, right? And even when God warns them of their sin and warns them of his coming judgment, they did not listen. They covered their ears, they hardened their hearts, and they mocked God's messengers. Until, as Chronicles says, the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Now, the Bible tells us that God is patient, that he is slow to anger, and that he is abounding in steadfast love. And yet, as his people continue to sin and sin and sin, they are provoking God to anger, to his holy and righteous wrath. So once again, why 
Are the people suffering this miserably? After reading the poem, it would be easy to answer something like, okay, well, they're suffering so badly because their friends betrayed them. Or they're suffering so badly because the Babylonians are big and strong and scary and evil. And while both those things are a part of the equation, the interesting thing is that's not actually what the Bible says. The author says there in verse 12, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. So the poet here is clearly saying that the Lord God is the afflictor who brought this sorrow and this pain upon them. But that's strange. I thought it was their enemies who did this. I thought it was their sin that did this. Surely God is a God of love. Surely God is a God of grace. God hates evil. God hates sin. God hates to see his people suffer. So why would he bring this upon them? Good question. I'm glad you asked. Look back at verse 5. It says this, Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. This verse is clearly telling us that God is afflicting his people for their sins. So yes and amen, God is a God of love. God is a God of grace. But we need to know that our God loves his people too much to simply tolerate their sin. That he loves his people too much to sit back and passively tolerate their spiritual adultery. That he loves his people too much to share the throne of their hearts with a rival. And so our God shows his love and his grace to his people by afflicting them for their sins. Rather than giving them the most enjoyable pleasures and hoping they'll notice and hoping they'll repent, God brings pain. Listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis. Anyone who has watched gluttons shovel down exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So friends, pain is God's megaphone to his people. That God is the God who is the hound of heaven chasing down his people's hearts. And much like a good physician, he will wound in order to bind up. And so the poet is going to expand for us specifically how the Lord afflicted them. Look down at verse 13. From on high, he sent fire. Into my bones, he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. So the poet's saying that God is the one who sent fire to burn the city. It's confusing. Was it the Babylonians that set fire to the city or was it God? And the answer is yes. God ordained through the Babylonians to set fire to the city of Jerusalem. And in the same way that he sent fire to the city, he sent fire into their bones, which certainly is poetic and metaphorical language here, but doesn't make it any less real. The people of Judah are somatically suffering the same pain that their beloved city was experiencing. And God was not only the one who sent fire, he was the one who spread a net for their feet. 
so that they would be captured. He left them stunned. He left them faint before their enemies so they would be caught in a trap, vulnerable and helpless. Verse 14 says, My transgressions were bound into a yoke by his hand. They were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. And so God took all their sins, bound them into a yoke, fastened them together, and put them on his people's neck, which caused their strength to fail and to be given into the hands of their enemies. So when we peel back the curtain of the destruction of Jerusalem, we see once again that God is the afflictor. Verse 15, the Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. So the Lord is actively rejecting them and actively summoning this assembly against them. And then it says, he takes this woman of Jerusalem, the daughter of Judah, and has her trodden in a winepress. In other words, this woman is like a grape that God is crushing through the winepress. And interestingly, this is the exact same imagery that is used to speak of God's wrath in the book of Revelation. What God will one day do to his enemies in Revelation 14, verses 19 and 20, it says, So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So it's one thing to face a tremendous amount of misery. It's another thing altogether to know that it is coming directly from the God of the universe, who is the one doing the afflicting. It's one thing to face an army conquering your city in your place of worship, in your homeland. But it's another thing to know that that was sovereignly brought about by the king of the heavens. Like you might technically have a chance of fighting against the Babylonians, but try going up against the God of the universe. As Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And please know this is not because God hates them, but it's ultimately because of the loving and gracious and kind character of God. Because God knows that if his people are to continue in their sins and their rebellion and their idolatry, that they will spend an eternity in hell. And God knows that his people's miseries that they've been experiencing here is just a tiny sliver of the torment and the misery that they will face forever and ever in hell. And once again, he loves his people far too much to passively sit by and let them plunge themselves into idol worship. So God has afflicted them for their sins. But as we know, any relationship goes both ways. It's a two-way street. So how will the people of Judah respond? They could choose to run, hide, rebel, kick and scream. Look at verse 18. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Friends, so much sin and lack of confession and repentance come from us insisting that we are right and God is wrong. 
But look at this confession here, simply saying, God, you are right and I am wrong. And so if you're caught up in sin today, be encouraged that the Lord is patient, that he is slow to anger, that he is abounding in steadfast love and that you can come to him and say, Lord, you are right. I am wrong. In verse 19, the poet further elaborates by acknowledging that his idols didn't even work. He says, I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. And this is always how our sin and how our idols treat us, right? They might make us happy for a few minutes or a few hours or even a few years, but they will always take from us. They will always leave us high and dry and empty-handed. And so in the last few verses of the poem, the, the author just lays it all out there for God. Verse 20, he says, Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. He is like a man in the emergency room crying out and screaming like, Here's what's wrong with me. Here's my pain. Here's my sin. Here's where I hurt. Here's where I'm broken. Take it, God. Here's my condition. I'm not holding anything back from you, Lord. And he's throwing himself into the loving arms of the one who afflicted him for his good. So that's point number two, Jerusalem's afflictor. But as Pastor Ed told us last week, when we read the Old Testament, we need to see Jesus Christ. As Charles Spurgeon said, just as every road in England eventually leads to London, so every road in the Bible leads to Christ. Or as Christ himself said, it is these that testify of me. So where do we see Jesus in this passage? Five questions for us. Question number one, as the hymn says, was there ever grief like his? If we go all the way back to the beginning of the passage and read about the kinds of misery and grief that God's people are facing, that they were lonely, that they were weeping, and that they had no comfort or friends, think about our Savior, Jesus. That as, as Isaiah says, that he was despised and rejected by men, that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, that he had no one to comfort him in his greatest hour of need. Look at verse 12 again and, and think about our Savior. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Was there ever grief like Christ's? Question two, was there ever dissent like his? Think about how much Jerusalem had descended from their former glory. They had gone from being a glorious nation with kings and lands and riches and thriving people to here being described as brought low, being a widow and a slave and a mockery. But friends, how much more did our King Jesus descend? He left heaven's throne Philippians 2 says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, by coming to us, by taking on human flesh. And then he descended not just to earth, but he descended all the way to death on a cross and to the dead. Was there ever descent like Christ? Question number three, was there ever betrayal like his? Right? Judah had been betrayed by these surrounding nations, by those whom they thought were their friends, but Jesus, he loved and trained Judas Iscariot for three entire years. And the same feat 
of Judas that were washed by Christ, minutes later went to betray him. And not only Judas, but but the very people that he created used their voices to mock him and used their strength to nail him on that cross. Was there ever betrayal like Christ? Question four, was there ever filth like his? The people of Judah became filthy because of their sins, but the gospel is that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Right, So Christ on the cross takes on all of his people's sin, all of the dirtiness, all of that filth. And as Galatians 3 says, he literally became a curse for us as he absorbed our filthy sins. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the one who never sinned, took on our filthiness that we might go free clean. Was there ever filth like his? And question five, was there ever affliction like his? The people of Judah were afflicted directly by God himself. But oh, how much more affliction did Christ face when the Father, whom he had been in perfect fellowship with for all of eternity, poured out his wrath upon him and afflicted him upon that cross. God sent fire into his bones. God crushed him as a grape through the winepress and his blood was everywhere. And even as we read verses like verse 20, we can almost hear Christ crying out on the cross, Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. Taking on his people's sin, afflicted by God, was there ever affliction like Christ? But how does all of this apply to our church? Four applications for us today. Number one, to the unsaved, to those who don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, you will be eternally miserable. Many of us know different aspects of misery that the poet has expressed here and as painful and as hard and as inescapable as those miseries can be. If you're not a Christian, you need to know that all of this earthly misery is just a tiny sliver of the misery to come in an eternity in hell. Misery here is infinitely less than eternal misery, both in terms of its intensity and its duration. And in the same way that Jerusalem's sin earned them their misery, we need to know that our sins earn us not just earthly misery, but eternal misery. The way that God would pour out his wrath on Christ, if you're not found in Christ, that wrath will be poured out on you for all of eternity. It's either pay for your own sins forever and ever or find shelter in the Son of God. So if you haven't looked to Christ for your salvation, repent, turn from your sins, turn to him today. Talk with someone around you about that. We would love to chat more with you about that. Number two, Learn from Lamentations how to lament. So are you feeling miserable today? Do you relate to this poet in some way? Are you feeling lonely or sad or betrayed or brought low or like you have enemies? First of all, the poet here teaches us what to do with our misery, namely that he doesn't deny it, he doesn't bottle it all up and not talk about it, but rather he cries out to the Lord and he pours out his heart completely before his God. So friends, we can tell Jesus about our hardships. 
We can tell Jesus about our misery, and we can use graphic details, right? That is the kind of access that we have in the gospel. So learn from Lamentations how to lament. Number three, know that it is the Lord who brings hardship into our lives. In Jerusalem's case, it was with rebuke for their sins as God was using his megaphone of pain in their lives. And and maybe that's you right now. Like maybe God is bringing hardship or affliction into your life as a result of rebuking you for your sins. And if that's you, I would just lovingly ask you, where is the sin in your life that you need to repent of today? And how can you confess that to a brother or sister and repent of that today? But maybe you are more like Job, more like an innocent sufferer where you don't have your suffering is not directly connected or correlated to a specific sin. But even so, it is still the Lord who brings those hard things into our lives. Hebrews 12 says, The Lord disciplines those he loves. So God doesn't punish his children who are in Christ, but he does let hard things come into our lives for our good and for his glory. So whatever your hardship is today, whatever your misery is today, it will make you more like Christ. It will wean you more and more from this world. It will make you more homesick for our eternity in heaven with Christ. And number four, don't lament alone. And don't let others lament alone. This poem is an individual that is writing it, but he's writing on behalf of his community, right? It's essentially group poetry. So are you facing today joblessness or chronic pain or unsaved loved ones or loneliness or desire for spouse? Whatever your misery is, involve your brothers and sisters in this church family into your lamenting process, right? Invite them in and try to find those who may be struggling or suffering quietly and ask them the hard and even the potentially awkward questions. And when helping people remember that every Christian is at the same time a sinner, a saint, and a sufferer. So don't immediately jump to thinking that they've sinned in some way, right? But at the same time, encourage one another to constantly be rooting out that sin in our lives and fleeing to Christ. Comfort with the comfort with which we ourselves have received from God. Weep with those who weep and grieve as those who have hope in the God who raises the dead. So when Judah was exiled here, all appeared as lost. Judah was miserable, just like we would be if our city or if our church was ransacked. But the Lord was the loving and gracious afflictor who loved them too much to let them have their sins. And the author of Lamentations wrote in the pure misery of being exiled out of God's land and genuinely not knowing what is next. But our Lord Jesus was willing to come on a rescue mission, to go through infinitely worse misery than his people did, to face the affliction of God his Father, pouring out his wrath for us and for our salvation. And he suffered all these miseries so that we wouldn't have to. Satan thinks that he won at the fall. Satan thinks that he won at the exile. Satan thinks that he won at the cross. But this is the great reversal of the gospel, that though our sins are many, his mercy is more. And so when we face misery today, look to your Savior. Cry out to him in faith and hope, knowing that he faced this misery for you. 
and wait for the day when he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and King, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that even when it is difficult, when it is hard, when it is sad, Lord, that you don't hold anything back from us. So thank you for this truth. Thank you for this gospel. I pray today, God, for all of us who might be suffering misery in various regards. Lord, I pray that we would cry out to you, that we would look to you and find grace and find love and find comfort. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.